This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. So good evening, everybody. Welcome. Uh, this is the 10th Haskins Lecture on Science Policy. Uh, I feel like I know almost everybody here, not, not quite, I'm, so I'll introduce myself. I'm Michael Rich. I'm president and CEO of the RAND Corporation. Now, the Haskins Lecture. Uh, that was endowed by Carol and Edna Haskins to promote the importance of science uh, and technology policy. And since 1995, the Haskins Fellows have had an important place uh, here at RAND. Uh, you can see the full list of the Haskins Fellows in the past on the back of your program. So it's now my pleasure to introduce the 20th director of DARPA and our 10th uh, Haskins Fellow, Dr. Arthi Prabhakar. Well, I'm going to say a few words uh, about her. Uh, there's a short bio in the program, but uh, Dr. Prabhakar has now spent her entire career um, identifying, uh, inspiring, and investing in world-class scientists and engineers uh, to create new capabilities, uh, new capabilities through new technologies, through new systems, and through new enterprises. She joined uh, DARPA originally in uh, 1986 and founded the uh, Microelectronics Technology Office uh, shortly thereafter. Her career actually has combined uh, public service as well as uh, commercial success in the private sector. In 1993, President Clinton nominated her to be director of the National Institute, uh, Institute for Standards and Technology. That's the part of the Commerce Department that advances uh, scientific standards and measurements, absolutely key for ensuring the competitiveness of, of American industry. And in 2012, after a decade and a half in Silicon Valley, uh, she returned to DARPA, this time nominated by President Obama uh, to be uh, the director. So we're honored to have her here today. Uh, please join me in welcoming to the podium Dr. Arthi Prabhakar. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much, Michael, for that nice introduction. It's just such an honor to be here uh, and to give this lecture to be uh, to join Rand and this broader community. Um, you know, this also became for me a terrific opportunity to get better acquainted with Rand. I have known about the work in this organization for uh, forever, uh, but had not really had a chance to dive in and learn more about what uh, Rand is as an institution. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time with uh, Rand today. Uh, really because of two things I saw that resonated with me. The first was something Michael spoke about just now, which was a recognition that the, the context for the work that we do in technology and science and engineering uh, is we don't do those, we don't pursue those areas in a vacuum. We pursue them in the context of societal challenges and societal opportunities. And so thinking about them in the context of policy is is uh, critical and uh, a, a vibrant enterprise, and it's, it was uh, exciting to hear about so many of those efforts here this afternoon. The second reason is that I think, like DARPA, RAND, uh, Rand strives for enormous impact, but also 
wants to make sure that it delivers real things in, 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 in the palpable future. And I think keeping both of those timescales uh, in mind is something that is rare and also very, very valuable. So I felt a great resonance. Uh, it, it terrific to see such a wide group that come to the Haskins lecture. So uh, I, it, I really uh, want to congratulate Rand on being able to engage this much broader community. And I, I'm sure it adds to the richness of the dialogue that you have here in, in the work that you do. Uh, what I would like to do with you all tonight is tell you a little bit about DARPA's mission and our history, uh, tell you a bit about the context in which we do our work today, uh, and then give you a number of examples of the programs that we're pursuing uh, uh, as we uh, continue to pursue our longstanding mission at DARPA. Uh, our story at DARPA uh, begins, uh, actually my story starts the way Michael started, our, because our story was really initiated with the launch of Sputnik in 1957. Uh, then as now, we understood that technology is a cornerstone of our national security. We didn't like being surprised by Sputnik, and DARPA was created out of a recognition that in addition to the work that we do in each of the military services in research and development, yes, we need those efforts to, to drive the developments for the known military requirements that we already see in front of us, but we also recognize that we need a way to look beyond and outside those efforts. Uh, and that that was going to be critical to, to preventing technological surprise. So my predecessors at DARPA quickly realized that the best way to prevent surprise is to create a few surprises of our own. And that's what we've been doing for the last five and a half decades. And um, uh, uh, you know, I, I've had the privilege of spending about half of my professional life in public service and about half of it in the private sector. And uh, I've been amused to find that when I talk to my colleagues in the Pentagon and in, in the military services, most of them know DARPA as the place where stealth aircraft originated and where the miniaturization of GPS led to its omnipresence today. And a host of other military technologies that, that trace back to our work, uh, technologies which have changed military outcomes. Uh, which is something we take great pride in. Uh, in my 15 years in Silicon Valley, people sort of knew about that, but what they really knew DARPA for was the work that we had done in pursuit of our national security mission, the work that we had done to plant the seeds that led to the information revolution. For those that had longer memories, some of the earlier work that really started uh, making material science uh, the discipline that it is today. And that has had you know, many, many different facets of technology. Uh, but in many senses, uh, a lot of those threads come together every time one of us uses our smartphone to do something as mundane and miraculous as checking a social networking site because the materials in the battery and in the display trace back to some of our early work. The gallium arsenide component that sends the radio wave to the cell tower traces back to some of our early work. Um, uh, the speech recognition and, and the personal assistant that you might be using lives on top of many decades of DARPA's uh, investments in artificial intelligence. And of course, when you go out and touch and interact with and use and live on top of the internet, you're living on top of that a foundation that we helped lay in the very early days. So, you know, whether it's the military applications or the enabling technologies and their much broader economic impact, 
I, I want to be very clear that while we're proud of what's come from this work, we're also very clear that nothing on this slide happened uh, simply because of DARPA's effort. Uh, in the case of the military capabilities, uh, uh, we worked with universities, companies of all sizes, with our partners across the Defense Department, and ultimately those technologies became meaningful capabilities because our military operators, our warfighters, turned them into something that really changed national security outcomes. And then similarly, uh, for the bottom half of this story, the enabling technologies, that was a foundation laid by public investment, but it was followed by many, many, many billions of dollars of private investment and uh, entrepreneurship, uh, tremendous efforts, that, that, and that's really what created products and companies and whole industries that have helped change how we live and work. So DARPA is part of this much bigger ecosystem uh, that takes uh, research and turns it into important technologies in our community. We're, we're part of these communities, but we have a particular role in these communities, and that is to make the pivotal early investments that change what's possible so that we can take big strides forward in our national security capabilities. And that has been our mission for uh, 56 years. The mission is, uh, I itself is unchanged, uh, but the world in which we live, of course, uh, has changed many times since uh, the middle of the Cold War when we started. Uh, the, the technologies have changed, <laughs> geopolitics has changed. Uh, so today when we think about the factors that shape the national security landscape, and define the context for our mission today, uh, let me highlight for you three major themes that I think really are critical in shaping the work that uh, I'll be talking about later. Uh, the first simply recognizes that the national security threats that we face today uh, are very uh, wide-ranging and diverse in nature. Uh, absolutely, it matters today what the actions of nation-states will be in the years to come. Uh, where will China's growth and ambitions take it? What is Russia doing in Europe? Uh, a, a current question. Uh, what will happen with Iran and North Korea? These are, these are core questions. Uh, and in fact, I think the apparatus of national security and international security in our government is, is designed to think and operate and, and deal with those kinds of questions. But of course, national security today also includes, on the other end of the spectrum, dealing with this shape-shifting, diffuse threat of networked terrorism. Uh, often, this, these are activities that link back to nation-states, but they typically involve linkages uh, among terrorist, act terrorist groups, uh, criminal activity, tra trans-border uh, activity of various sorts, uh, money uh, laundering, drug trafficking, even human trafficking in some cases. Uh, and uh, that is actually the chronic national security threat. That's the one that we deal with on an everyday basis. And when we think about the work that we need to do at DARPA to prepare for the next generation of national security capabilities, we, we must keep that full spectrum of threats uh, in our sight. So that's number one. Uh, secondly, um, the second factor really has to do with technology itself. Uh, many of us grew up uh, in the United States in a time when we had an, uh, an unusual and a marvelous uh, technological advantage in many, many fields, almost every significant field uh, over the rest of the world, especially in the post-World uh, War II environment. Uh, that was fantastic, but it was not uh, a typical period uh, through history. And I think uh, today as we see other nations uh, advancing their technological capabilities as 
uh, commercial technologies globalize and commoditize and become widely available, that is creating a very different technology landscape in which we still must meet our national security goals. That's an important factor for DARPA today as well. Uh, and the third factor is also something that I think is uh, different for the high-tech uh, defense technology community, and that is a, a factor that has to do with cost. Uh, and in particular, I mean the cost of our operational military systems. I think we've actually used America's deep pockets as a competitive advantage in national security for an extended period of time a very effective, very powerful strategy, but one that is now killing us. And, and you know, you can see daily um, the choices that we're having to make in the Pentagon about which systems we will and won't buy, uh, the declining number of major platforms. <coughs> As their costs rise, we decide to buy fewer of them, and then the costs rise some more, so we buy even fewer, a cycle that is really killing us. And so in that sense, I think the cost factor is in itself becoming a, a significant threat to our future security. Now, I think the high-tech uh, community has tended to think of that as somebody else's problem. I now believe that those problems are significant enough, deep enough, severe enough, that we're going to have to own that problem because I think it's going to take deep innovation to craft radically new strategies to think about these complex systems in a new way. So those are some of the themes uh, that maybe you'll see and some of the examples I'd like to give you. Uh, let me start with uh, one broad area of investment at DARPA today, which has to do with information at massive scale. In many regards, uh, this is the next generation of the information revolution unfolding. Uh, we see it in the commercial world. In the national security context, uh, I, information at massive scale today has uh, two facets. One is cybersecurity and uh, the, the conduct of cyber conflict. Uh, that is, of course, about controlling the ones and zeros. But on top of that is the information domain itself, a domain that has always been about conflict and persuasion and influence, but, but today is accessible to a va far vaster number of players who can uh, achieve effects at scale and at, at a speed that is really uh, unprecedented. So I think in many ways it's becoming uh, the most interesting emerging domain. Uh, DARPA is doing a whole host of things uh, about cyber and uh, information at massive scale. Uh, in the cyber domain, for example, uh, again, because our focus is not operational investments, but really trying to create the technologies that will fundamentally change the game ahead. Our goal in cyber is to move well beyond the patch and pray capability, which is really all we have today for cybersecurity, to move to a future in which we can create a more uh, secure foundation of cyber capabilities and for what I believe will be the inevitable ongoing cyber conflict, which I think will also, in time, will also move into the kinetic warfighting arena. As those, uh, as, as those trends unfold, we want to make sure that we have the cyber warfighting capabilities uh, that allow us to uh, drive and, and, and control that domain as it emerges. So those are, uh, there are a whole host of things going on in cyber. I'll just mention those very briefly. The specific example I'd like to give you in this area has to do with some work that we're doing on the big data side, data sciences efforts, uh, a host of things that we're doing. Uh, and this particular project, uh, this is a seedling effort that we did uh, as we started a new program called Memex. Memex aims to uh, create the tools for domain-specific deep web search uh, in pursuit of tools and capabilities that would help 
uh, law enforcement and the national security uh, apparatus uh, find bad actors who are using the public internet infrastructure to conduct illegal or illicit activities. Uh, today, when law enforcement, for example, goes after human trafficking, it's a, it's a manual, arduous process. Uh, the online portion of that uh, it consists of them doing Google searches, the way we all interact with the web. And you know, Google is a phenomenally powerful capability, Google or any other search engine you might use. But these search engines are indexing only a very small fraction of the publicly available web. It's a fraction that is optimized for advertising revenue. That's the business model. Uh, and, it, and it doesn't even attempt to go into the, the, the you know, publicly available but not that relevant uh, websites for the business that they're in. Uh, the, the premise of uh, Memex is to do the kind of deep search in specific domains that we think would, would open up a different level of uh, search capability for these kinds of law enforcement applications. This seedling project began by taking back page ads for the region uh, around Dallas, Texas. A lot of sex services have now moved to back page ads. And the project uh, swept up uh, all these publicly available websites and clustered them according to common information that they found among websites. So this clustering map that you see here, uh, one of the big red dots is a phone number and you see the websites that are linked around it. From this work, this clustering work, the group swept up 600 phone numbers that seemed highly clustered across a much larger number, uh, and they gave that group of 600 phone numbers, again, remember this is not only is it from public information, it's from advertising, which is the most public information of all, uh, they gave that list of 600 phone numbers to our colleagues in law enforcement, and uh, the first thing that that group found when they compared the 600 numbers against their arduously built, manually built database was that uh, those numbers linked to 466 uh, known criminal violations, which was the first signal that there, this was a pretty rich set of phone numbers that would be pretty promising for them to work with. Uh, the second finding was even more interesting, and that was uh, finding that among those phone numbers were numbers that traced to 30 fund transfers in the regions that circle North Korea. Now, you know, you can speculate, and of course the work is being done to find out if in fact this is about human trafficking from North Korea. Um, it, it, this isn't a smoking gun, but, but, but it's a much richer, much more uh, agile way for this community to, to start getting a sense of uh, scale over the vastness of the open internet, which is such a resource for good things, as we all know, but also for, for bad actors in this case. One small example. Uh, let me shift gears and talk about a different area. I mentioned the growth in the cost and the complexity of our military systems. Uh, again, the, uh, pursuing that uh, approach of phenomenal complexity and phenomenal capability for our fighter aircraft, for our major um, uh, uh, satellite systems, for our uh, radar and electronic warfare systems, very effective strategy over an extended period of time, but one that is now creating, I think, far more problems than, than we know how to deal with. Uh, and so one of the themes in the work that we're doing at DARPA is, is to think in fundamentally new ways about how we can achieve those capabilities and those powerful, complex end results without suffering, without 
dying from doing it. So let me give you a couple of examples of work that we're doing in that area. Uh, the first one begins with work in the electronic warfare arena. Uh, one thing that was a tremendous surprise to me when I returned uh, to the defense uh, community after nearly two decades in other areas uh, was to find how quickly the electronic warfare threat had advanced around the world. Uh, this is What this really is, is the ability of many other nations and actors to take commercially available components, semiconductor components that can be purchased from a catalog, and cobble together, very readily cobble together jammers that can create enormous challenges for our complex military systems. So that's what's going on on the, on the adversary side. If you look at our ability to change and to keep up with the growth of that threat, unfortunately, we are the opposite. The technology is moving quickly. We don't have the ability to adopt it and integrate it into our existing platforms quickly. Often that can be a multi-year, sometimes a multi-decade process. Often it can cost billions of dollars. And the end result is terrible. It is adversary diversity and U.S. predictability, the opposite of what we would like to see. So now that same underlying technology, we believe, can be used, can be driven and then used to do things in a radically different way. And uh, in, the, in particular, in this business of controlling the electromagnetic spectrum for radar and communications, uh, we have a host of programs that are doing several things. The first is in real time to understand what is happening in the dynamic electromagnetic environment during conflict. Secondly, to shape a response that would protect our ability to use the electromagnetic spectrum and cast a different picture or block the adversary from being able to use the electromagnetic spectrum. And then finally, developing the hardware that allows us to implement those, uh, those, that, that rapid real-time response in the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, those of you who might, be, uh, might work in this area will recognize a trend uh, of moving the digital interface closer and closer to the antenna, uh, doing that and advancing power uh, amplifiers and the RF components on the front end. That combination of technologies we think is going to be very, very powerful in the next generation, not only to have more capability, but also to re-architect in a way that allows for greater reuse uh, and allows for flexibility and upgradability uh, as we move into the next generations. So that's one example of rethinking complex military systems. Uh, another area in which uh, we suffer, I think, from some of the same characteristics uh, is space. Uh, space is a domain we have had uh, since, you know, Sputnik actually did a terrific job of getting our attention, and since then we've, we've had uh, huge efforts and huge success in the space domain. Uh, today it is something on which we are critically reliant, all of us in our civilian lives, uh, but also it is uh, essential to the way that we achieve military advantage. The kind of highly precise, highly lethal warfare that we can conduct is critically dependent on GPS for position, navigation, and timing information, on imaging, on communications, on weather information. Uh, none of those work when space goes away uh, as an asset. So again, well, what do we do about that? Uh, today, uh, when we want to be able to operate in space, it's something that often takes years uh, to uh, even uh, achieve a launch from the time that we plan one. It's extremely costly. Many of the same problems. Uh, just not, we're not really able to move at the pace of the technology. So what are we doing in this area? A host of different pieces. 
um, that I think will be essential to changing the game in space. One leg of the work has to do with launch. Uh, and here, uh, I think there's a big opportunity to change uh, the technologies, but also the business practices in a way that can be extremely powerful. Uh, a couple of our programs are aimed to uh, achieve the ability to uh, put payloads on orbit at dramatically lower costs in the few million dollar range uh, relative to what it costs today. But even more significantly, uh, these are approaches that would allow us to launch from any runway in the world, uh, on 24-hour call-up and, and contrast that with today's situation where we really only have a very limited number of fixed sites where it can take not 24 hours but 24 months to, to schedule launch. Uh, this We're going to have to find some creative ways around this. And I think there here there are phenomenal opportunities to, to link to, to leverage and partner with what is happening with uh, commercial uh, space activities. One piece of the puzzle. Another piece of the puzzle, today when we launch a satellite, for example, to geosynchronous orbit, you know, imagine you're putting a thing the size of a, of a school bus uh, on, into this orbit that's a tenth of the way to the moon. It gets there. Whatever you sent up there is what you've got. You're going to live with it until it dies uh, because of how far away it is and how hard it has been to get it up there. We are working in our Phoenix program today to create the space robotics technology that would allow us to service satellites at those orbits, uh, to repair satellites at that orbit, potentially to reuse components at that or orbit, uh, technology capabilities that I think would be, will be transformative uh, of the economics of GEO if we're able to be successful technically. Uh, a final piece of the puzzle has to do with just knowing what is happening in space. Today we think in terms of orbital catalog maintenance, just sort of counting and making sure we know what's up there. We don't actually have a complete picture even so. Meanwhile, space is continuing to become more congested. We're going to move, I believe, into a more contested space environment. Uh, it's an environment in which things happen now in real time on, on timescales in which we're going to have to be able to observe quickly and be able to react. Uh, so we need to be able to move to a future in which we think not in terms of orbital catalog maintenance, but in terms of uh, space traffic control, the way we think about controlling traffic in the air domain. And this, too, is another area of uh, number of investments in our portfolio. Uh, let me um, shift gears and tell you about a third category of work that we're doing. Uh, one of DARPA's core responsibilities is to scour the research landscape and to look for, to scout for those areas where we see something bubbling that looks like the seeds of technological surprise, where the possibility exists for significant advances in technological capability. A lot of wonderful research will happen that will not lead to that. We're looking for the places where research could lead there. And today, when we look at the intersection of biology with physical sciences and engineering and with information technology, we see an enormous number of opportunities for technological surprise. So let me give you just a few examples from our portfolio. Uh, the first is work that we're doing to outpace the spread of infectious disease, a problem that we care about in the narrow DOD sense because we send our warfighters to parts of the world where they're exposed to infectious disease, a problem we care about from a broader national security perspective because of bio bioterror threats, uh, but a problem that we all, you know, in our day-to-day -day lives, every year we deal with the seasonal flu cycle and trying to figure out if we should get the vaccine and how effective is it going to be. We're all aware of the emergence of uh, new 
diseases, new infectious diseases from time to time, often very devastating diseases that will surge and that take us a while, H1N1 being a fairly recent example, where uh, we race after it and finally try to get a out ahead of it. Uh, the work that we're doing in our program at DARPA is designed to, it, with two pieces, to try to outpace the spread of these diseases. The first part of the puzzle is to know what the disease is doing in the population. And today, the way we do that involves sending a lab sample uh, in a protected uh, package off to a remote laboratory, which then you know, runs these complex tests and then sends it back, by which time you're a lot sicker before, before you even know what you've got. It's a terrible way to really get a sense of what's happening in the population. So solving that problem of rapid but highly specific diagnosis is one part of the problem. And the second part is then what do you do about it? How do you g deliver, very rapidly deliver the protection that you need to prevent it? Uh, so you know, on the diagnostic side, a lot of the technology we work on is about creating great complexity. This is a problem about using technology to make something really simple. And uh, what you're going to see now is Rustam uh, Ismagalov, the Caltech researcher working in this. This is his six-year-old son who's going to show you how this new diagnostic works. This is how you do slip chip experiment. First you get the sample. And it's fake blood, I was told. Then you put it in the hole. Then you cover it with the top. Then you wait until it goes to the end. Then you slip, and now it's done. So uh, what he has done is take a drop of blood. You saw it stream into these channels in this little microfluidic plate. At the end, when he slips the two the two uh, panels uh, across each other, he essentially creates thousands of tiny wells. Each one is a different experiment. Each of each piece of each little segment of blood is landing in a preloaded uh, pocket with a reagent in it. So essentially all the testing, all that complex testing that's required to make a specific diagnosis is able to be done on that small self-contained chip. And now this is a Caltech child, so you know, but, <laughs> but a, si a, a six-year-old can do it. Uh, and, you know, I think that to me is very encouraging because it means a soldier under distressed circumstances, uh, under pressure, should be able to deal with it as well. So, you know, w one piece of the puzzle, rapid specific diagnosis. The second thing that goes along with that, prophylaxis, we are doing work first to enhance the effectiveness of vaccines using some new research techniques. But also, very intriguingly, there's new research that allows us to believe we might be able to come up with techniques to deliver immediate protection. Remember, when you get your vaccine, there's a period before your body starts generating those antibodies. If we can generate this immediate but temporary protection, it could be an important bridge to start getting that immunity out there before vaccines really kick in. 
for our warfighters, it could be a complete solution for a short tour of a few weeks in a region that they need protection for. So uh, very important work that I think uh, is going to, and if, if we are successful technically and then in implementing it, I think it's going to have a huge impact. Uh, I'm going to skip synthetic biology just in the interest of time. And uh, as uh, my last example in biology, I want to talk a little bit about work we're doing on brain function research. Uh, this is uh, work uh, that began at DARPA a few years ago when one of our then program managers, who now an office director, Jeff Ling, uh, returned from theater. Jeff uh, was an army colonel, uh, a neurointensivist by training, an army doc. Uh, he spent time in theater, uh, came home convinced that we had to find a way to develop better prosthetics for our wounded warriors, upper limb prosthetics, uh, better than the simple hook that has been the standard thing for so many decades. Uh, Jeff embarked on a DARPA program that had two branches. One was to develop a very sophisticated mechanical prosthetic arm with all the degrees of freedom needed. The other was to really understand motor control in the brain. Uh, and to, to try to understand from that how we would, how we would get the kind of very natural control that we all have of our limbs. Uh, that work culminated in uh, the first few human trials over the last couple of years. And uh, one of our uh, patients is a woman named Jan. You'll see a video here in a moment. Jan has been a quadriplegic for a number of years. She heard about uh, the local uh, university, the University of Pittsburgh, close to where she lives. Uh, they were advertising for volunteers for this re research. Uh, and what the, the project that she uh, embarked on was one in which uh, a chip has been surgically emplaced on her neocortex. It's a small probe, and it, what it does is it, it picks up the electrical signals from the region of her brain that, you know, that we knew was going to be associated with some motor control signaling. Uh, those electrical signals come out to these ports that are on her head, and you'll see that that's what is being hooked up here. Those signals then are being used to control this prosthetic arm, and this is going to show you what she's able to do after about five months. I think. Five months after the surgery, we came back to see whether she would be able to control the robotic arm with nothing but her thoughts. They plugged her brain into the computer, and this is what we saw. I can move it up and straight down and left and right and diagonally. I can close it and open it, and I can go forward and back. That is just the most astounding thing I've ever seen. Can we shake hands? Sure. No, really? Yeah. Like, come right over here? Yes, you come over okay. there. Okay. Grasp your hand there. There we go. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And I can do a fist bump if you'd like. <laughs> That's amazing. What are you doing, Jan? What's going on in your mind as you're moving this arm around? What are you thinking? Okay, the best way to explain it is raise your arm. Uh-huh. Now, right. what did you think about when you did that? Well, not very much. I do it all the exactly. time. Exactly. It's automatic. Is that hard work? Are you having to concentrate? It, no, it was hard work getting there. I struggled greatly to go up and down at the beginning. Now up and down is so easy. I don't even think about it side to side. Don't even think about it. Just like, Just like that. your arms used to. Yes. Jan, Jan is truly amazing, and we were so fortunate to get someone of her character to, to come do this work. Um, the, the 
When I realized that Jan was not controlling one finger or one muscle at a time, but really it was this kind of near natural control, uh, that's when I realized that we had opened a door uh, we, that we have not walked through, but we are peering through and thinking about what is on the other side because, of course, the opportunities for restoration of function are very significant. But we've also, in a sense, we've, um, we have freed the brain from the body and uh, the opportunities that lie ahead, uh, I think, could be, could we go in almost any conceivable direction. Uh, now, uh, and that leads to the next topic, which is, you know, my first reaction was wow, and my second reaction was wow, because, uh, you know, really, when you see powerful technologies like this, it leads to a whole host of very interesting choices that I, th I think we're going to end up making. And, and you know, th that's obvious, I think, when you, when you think about the future of brain function research and the kinds of things we're going to be able to do. Uh, the issue also arises in our work in synthetic biology, which in which we invest because of the new materials and chemistries that will be possible, but we also know that there will be safety and security concerns. Uh, the work that we do in big data uh, frequently uh, runs into the, the challenges of, of thinking about security and privacy. The work that we do uh, uh, in space runs into global space policy concerns. Over and over again in these different work in these different arenas that we're operating in, uh, I think it is simply a reflection of the nature of our work because if if we are to push the leading edge of technology, I think it's not surprising that we find we are often the first to stumble into these uncomfortable, challenging societal questions. So, well, what do we do about that? Two things. Number one, DARPA's mission is to prevent technological surprise, and I want to make sure that we don't shy away from these challenging technology questions, these challenging societal questions, uh, and, and, and fail to investigate powerful new technologies as a consequence. But two, what comes with that is a responsibility to raise these issues, to get them on the table, to engage a much wider discourse about how society will use these powerful capabilities in the future. Uh, DARPA does not own the answers uh, to these questions, and uh, I actually don't want to live in a society where a bunch of technologists and national security make up the answers to these questions. They require thoughtful interchange among people with a whole host of different perspectives. Uh, so in, in many cases, uh, in each of these areas that I mentioned, uh, we've taken a different approach, but uh, in all cases, we try very hard to make sure that we're engaging this broader discourse for two-way conversation, for us to be able to show what technology might be capable of in the future, but also for us and for our research communities to hear how uh, people who have different perspectives and think about societal impact, policy issues, ethical issues, how they think and how they might help us think about the work that we're doing. Um, I I've spent a, a lot of time with you this evening on DARPA programs. I want to finish with um, uh, my program, which is how do I keep DARPA continuing to uh, bubble along and keeping this agency robust and vibrant. I think for all of us who serve at a place like this, it's part of our charge to make sure that we do the things today that allow this kind of entity to continue and thrive into the future for another 56 years of high impact uh, 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 
accomplishments for our nation. Uh, at DARPA, that means focus on two main pillars of uh, our operating model. One is bringing in phenomenal program managers. These are people we draw from the broad technical community. They come to DARPA typically for three to five years, and then they go on to do something else. They keep us perennially fresh because they don't come to DARPA for a full career. They come and, and drive a new program area, uh, and then they go on. These people uh, do their work, uh, and the reason that they are able to accomplish big things in a short period of time is that they tap into this very wide, diverse, uh, vibrant technology community. Uh, it includes universities, it includes research organizations, uh, RAND, <coughs> other not-for-profits, for-profits, government labs, and it certainly includes industry, uh, large, small, defense, commercial, and when all of that works, when we get the program managers humming, when we get the engagement with the broader technical community, all of that really lets us reinforce our foundation, which is a deep DARPA culture that is first and foremost about reaching for huge impact. Secondly, a willingness to take sometimes quite significant risk in order to reach that impact. And finally, uh, the privilege of public service and knowing that the work that we do is for the future for our country and for a better world. So thank you very much for the chance to be here and share some perspectives on DARPA. <laughs> I'd be very happy to hear your questions. Good, Good evening, everyone. We're going to have some uh, Q&A. So we ask if you have a question to please raise your hand uh, and look for myself or my colleague, uh, Monica. And we'll come to you, and uh, and uh, you can ask your question. So it looks like I've got a gentleman right here. This uh, really brings back some memories. I can recall squatting on the roof of the physics building over at UCLA, waiting for the big surprise when the Russians would launch Sputnik. Of course, it was their contribution to the IGY, and uh, Joe Kaplan, who was heading up the IGY, was you know, very much concerned with that. And I had a, an, a war surplus receiver uh, that I'd cobbled up, and uh, we were sitting on the roof of the building oh, listening wow. for that beep, beep, beep. Oh, that's and great. Th there it was. And, of course, the big <laughs> surprise was that it worked. Yes, that's right. <laughs> okay, well, uh, go back here for a question. That's great to hear. It's a little frightening to see some of the things that we don't know about that you're doing, uh, given that this is a sample that's for public consumption. And I wondered, is there any iota of concern in your mind that all of this technology, in the end, may not benefit mankind? Um, I think about that all the time. And I view our job as... Uh, making the investments that are going to be important for our future national security and always being cognizant of the fact that virtually every powerful new technology has had both great advances for mankind but also has had negative downsides. Uh, and, and I, you know, as I, as I tried to say towards the end, I think, um, you know, I, I am a technologist. I believe that technology is a net powerful force for good in the, in the development of, of the human race. That's why I do what I do. But I think uh, it is important to try to think about the power of these technologies and start the discussion about how, how we will choose to use them sooner rather than later. 
Uh, I think history shows that, in fact, but we've seen both sides come out of the work that we have done. Um, but I look around today at the world in which we live and the technologies that my agency and many others have contributed to, and I'm glad we made those investments because I think we did make uh, net a very positive step forward. I have a question in the front. Thank you so much for the absolutely fascinating presentation. It's really exciting to see what the government's doing these days. Uh, I was uh, capable of bringing uh, Dennis Tito to the RAND organization. You might remember Dennis was the first space tourist to go up. You know, he's okay. from Wilshire Associates. I think he paid $25,000 million, not thousand, million dollars. There. <laughs> um, and he talked to the RAND uh, specialists re with respect to his new foundation, which is um, the objective of which is to um, do space exploration to Mars. And just coincidentally, about a week later, I saw Elon Musk talk about his uh, exciting um, uh, SpaceX pre projects and learned also that his present his uh, objective is to um, uh, do more exploration as opposed to just uh, sub uh, going around the world. You know, uh, he wants to go out to Mars as well. And I'm just wondering uh, if the DARPA people feel uh, that there, there's some place for the private enterprise to uh, do something along the line of public-private enterprise? And if so, how do you find these people? Yeah, uh, you know, in, in space today, but in many, many, many other fields in which we have invested, our success has come out of finding these alignments of interest between private companies and what we need to do for for national security purposes. Uh, so that's actually a, a, a long and very productive history at DARPA. Uh, the fields in which we work continue to change. We're a projects agency. We, we, don't, we don't stay in any area forever. So you know, a generation ago, it was about working with the semiconductor industry. Today, we are building bridges to including the, the private space community, but also in some of the biology-related areas, we're reaching out to new research communities as well. So. The, your question of how we connect is at the heart of how we do our jobs. The, uh, where, how that really happens is in a hundred different ways. I have, uh, I have a hundred program managers. They are the heart and soul of the agency. We talk frequently about the fact that if they sit in their offices in Arlington, Virginia, and just wait who come to see who comes to see them, that we're going to fail. And so they have to get out in the world, and they do get out in the world. In fact, I love to walk around in my building, but I know I will almost never find <laughs> you know, a large number of them in their offices because they are out um, uh, meeting people, knocking on their doors, um, figuring out where those linkages can be made. We've got a question here on your right. Uh, is there anything you can tell us about advancements in uh, missile defense, specifically with North Korea developing missiles that can hit the West Coast? Uh, the, uh, probably the short answer to that is no. <laughs> I have a question to the speaker's left. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, not too long ago, uh, PBS re-aired a show regarding uh, the growth of superbugs that are antibiotic yeah. resistance, resist, resistant, excuse me. Uh, and one of the things that they mentioned was that because of the lack of profitability, one of the major manufacturers had decided to get out of the research business for a new antibiotic to uh, 
combat the superbugs. Does DARPA have a role in encouraging somebody to get back into the business? And if so, what is its role? Uh, the work I described on infectious disease is, is in the heart, you know, is we're, we're dealing with exactly those questions. Uh, those, those research areas in which we're focusing today, uh, I believe are gonna be core to solving these new, this new very threatening set of problems with, um, with drug-resistant uh, uh, microbes that are developing. But we and the rest of the world face the same problem, which is at the end of the day, even if you have something that works technically, how is it going to get manufactured and distributed to the populations that need it? And especially challenging when you're dealing with the spread of infection, of course, is that you have to be able to move and reach sometimes large populations very, very quickly. So we're, we're trying to work, first of all, talking with uh, biopharmaceutical companies that are in the business of doing vaccines and diagnostics also. Uh, but we're also talking with, for example, foundations like Gates Foundation that are thinking about it from a global health perspective. Uh, and you know, f they, they and others are thinking about the incentives and the techniques that might allow for uh, these sort of practical business problems ultimately to get dealt with. So you know, that's something that we need to, we wanna do everything that we can to create the conditions for that to happen. Ultimately, those are gonna end up being um, either market-driven or uh, health policy-driven uh, solutions. So uh, which, uh, we, w and neither of which we control. <laughs> so that's part of the challenge. So uh, we have time for uh, one or two more questions. I've got a question here on your right. I was intrigued by the comment you made that you're a technologist and you believe that the good from technology is far outweighed the bad. How would you respond to the, uh, what I consider a very alarming trend, at least in this country, of people who categorically deny science, number one, uh, the, the reversion back to uh, anti-evolution, back to creationism on one hand. The um, people who categorically deny global warming. And combining that with this massive attack against our core curriculum in education, where our education standing in the world is declining as, as I'm speaking. I'm just wondering what your opinion would be and how you would respond to that. Now I'm very depressed thinking about your question. Um, I, you know, these are, I think you're really raising some challenging questions. The, I, I, and I, for which I do not have answers. Um, I share some of your concerns and I think that um, th sometimes the only thing that really keeps me going when I watch things that are happening across the country, I, I think we have an incredibly resilient society and an incredibly resilient democracy. And you know, f the facts eventually catch up with us, and I, I think I am actually reasonably optimistic that we're going to self-correct and, and, and figure out how to move ahead despite some of these challenges. How it's going to happen is not yet clear to me, so I hope you're working on that. <laughs> I have a question in the back. Where actually, I was about to ask the, the same question that gentleman did, but um, I guess one step further than that, how, um, for those of us that aren't as you know, familiar with the the the, fin the financing of DARPA, yeah. um, those kind of you know the partisan uh, temperature that's going on in DC right now. How much does that affect your capability to to launch into very challenging new 
investigations when when you know things like the sequester questioning every nickel and dime you know how do you make the case that you would go in and explore something that's so radical right um, you know, when I returned to DARPA a year and a half ago, uh, I, one of my questions was what kind of support there would be for our mission, which I inherent in reaching for high impact is the taking of risk. And usually budget pressures translate to a lot of uh, a push for great, you know, more incremental work. I have been very pleasantly surprised for a very unpleasant reason. The pleasant surprise uh, has been to find that, in fact, there is tremendous support uh, in the Pentagon, in the administration, both sides of the aisle and both houses of Congress um, for DARPA's mission uh, and it explicitly for the mission of reaching for significant impact and being able to take risks. So I feel very grateful for that. The unpleasant part of that is to realize that uh, I, I actually think, uh, f at least in the Pentagon today, the pressures that our national security leaders are facing as they look at the threat landscape, they look at the proliferation of technologies and capabilities, they look at uh, the budget pressures that they're under and how we're struggling to, to balance you know, readiness and modernization. I think all of that amounts to an environment that is extremely challenging for our senior leaders today, and I believe that is part of the reason that uh, in many ways, I think they're looking to us for uh, not the incremental, but the things that can be dramatically transformational. Um, so for bad reasons, I think we get good support. Now, the practical answer to your question about budgets is, uh, so very strong support, but we have had budget erosion over the last many years, uh, just in the environment that we're in with pressures, especially on the defense budget. Our budget declined 20% in real terms from 09 to 13 it re returned slightly in 14. So we're sort of almost back now. We're about halfway back to where we were before sequestration, which was about an 8% cut. Eight of the 20 points was sequestration. So, you know, none of that is a death blow. Um, uh, we I want to make sure it doesn't continue to erode and that we recover uh, because it, those dollars, the lack of dollars translates to fewer big demonstration programs that really can show how these, you know, very, um, very, um, when we're trying to do breakthrough technologies, often we have to take them pretty far to show people that they really are going to be effective because they don't fit into the normal way of doing business. We do a little less of that when budgets come down. Uh, we do a little bit less of the far-out exploratory research. So, you know, you sort of regress to the mean under that kind of pressure. So I want to make sure that we don't suffer uh, too greatly from the effects of that erosion. Thank you so much. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.